politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight for life, liberty, and property once again to the one and only CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house here for Thursday, October 28th. And yes, it's not just about liberty. As important as that is, we are fighting, quite literally, for our lives. To sum up where we are and where we have been, the culmination of this 19-month jihad against our lives, is that everything that could possibly work to save us from this virus, they block, and everything that could harm us, they push and even mandate. Without exception, that is it in a nutshell. Everything that works, they block, and everything they push. The clot shots, lockdowns, masks, remdesivir, and now, as we're going to talk about soon with our guest today, Molnipiravir, Merck's new drug that they are pushing. What's the story with that? No good could come from that because we know this whole thing was designed by them. See, it clicked in my mind a couple months ago. I said, well, now that we know they created the virus, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense. Why would they allow us to escape it or concoct things that work against it if they created the virus in the first place? So what they do is, like what Elijah said to Ahab, have you killed and have you inherited? They kill and then benefit from that and use that as an impetus to come in with their new stuff to kill us even more. And we're not going to let that happen. But unfortunately, they've programmed people to go along with whatever they want. A new poll came out from uh, Goucher University. It's a college right near where I live. A A sample survey of Maryland residents. 83% said they plan on getting the booster. And when asked when they will be able to return to normal pre-COVID lives, roughly one in six Marylanders say never. Another 28% say six months to a year from now. And another 29% say it will be at least a year from now. So they train people exactly on cue to go along with whatever draconian thing they promote. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. As these things fail before our eyes, kill people. It doesn't matter. And we still have no solutions. But we're not going to let them. We're going to come up with our solutions. We're going to fight on all fronts. We're, we're trying to help you guys get medication, get your vitamins and natural supplements, your levels up. So we got to save people's lives from the virus, save them from the clot shots, save them from the atrophy that's happening to our seniors. And then obviously fight on all legislative fronts as well. Patriots that are in Iowa, Tennessee, and Wyoming, those states are going to be in session or are in session. A lot of good legislation or bad legislation is in the balance, hangs in the balance. So if you want to be part of those teams, go to conaction.network. You could sign up there. Now, today's show is sponsored by Better Spectacles. Uh, We've been talking a lot about doctors that, frankly, suck at what they do. There's no uh, positive spin to put on that. But Rodenstock, they're actually good at making eyewear. That's why my wife and I wear 
Rodin Stocks, Go Specs Lenses. It's a 144-year-old company, the world's gold standard for eyewear with over 500 patents. Ronald Reagan himself wore Rodin Stock glasses. They're Go Specs Lenses. They were created with an algorithm that measured more than a million patients uh, with 7,000 points in their eye. The result, more energy, no next strain, and the ability to help you see 40% better. Go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative to schedule your teleoptical appointment. You don't even have to leave your house and wear the stupid diaper over your face. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, this is the first time I ever did this without um, someone measuring it, and it fits perfectly. They're offering my audience an introductory 61% off their Ghostbacks lenses, plus free handcrafted Rodenstock frames. Just visit betterspectacles.com slash conservative. Go now. All right. So, you know, one, one of the points I've been making to people is that this whole thing started with nursing homes. And we don't, we don't hear about nursing homes anymore. It's not because they're not dying. They are dying. There's the triple threat to people in nursing homes. And really, by extension, people that have serious conditions, even if they're at home, number one, they're getting shot after shot after shot. Now they're pushing a fourth shot. Each one comes with known and unknown risks, likely creating microclotting at a minimum to people that could tolerate microclotting the least. It's not working to protect them from COVID, so they're still getting COVID and dying. The more they get the shots, especially in that two-week window, they're even more vulnerable than anyone else to get it. And then, nonetheless, they still don't trust it. Have you ever met a guy with three shots that's like going around, palling around with people? No, those are the people that are living a life of atrophy. The people that need to get that stimulation the most from being around people. I can't tell you how many people I know, and I'm sure all of you could commiserate with this, that have had parents and grandparents that they lost years from their lives. People that were in their 80s and you know doing fine, they, they acted like they were 55, 60, and now they've aged 20 years. And we're largely taking people, you know, especially when you talk about nursing homes, with one to three years of life left to them and guaranteeing that their life is over with the way we're, we're treating them and then for no benefit. So dirty little secret happening now is that a number of people are dying. You know, someone sent me from a nursing home from northern Indiana. They worked there. They announced 20 out of 22 cases they had this week were among the vaccinated. And by the way, that includes staff. So I'd imagine among the residents, the seniors, it's probably all of them. And people are dying. AARP has a dashboard. The death rate has gone up from 0.3 per 100,000 to 0.19 in just three months. That's a six-fold increase. Now, it's not where last year's levels are yet, but that's because A... Um, a lot of people do have natural immunity, but then there are new people that cycled into these homes that didn't get the virus yet. And it's not the winter yet. The winter is going to be horrible, especially in the states that have you know relatively low uh, prior infection rates. What's going to come of these people? So what was their announcement? Oh my gosh, there's people, there's people have COVID. We're going to treat them. Here's what we're doing. We have doctors on staff. Day one, we're making sure there anyone who needs IV and fluids, vitamin C infusions, and then certainly just the oral uh, supplements and ivermectin. No, nothing. We're locking them in their rooms. That's what they said. 
So again, they're killing them with the virus, killing them with with the shots. They say they anyone they'll, they'll let them out of their room if they go and get a booster. That's what they said. Happening everywhere now in Wisconsin, they admit that they're getting deluged with with deaths in nursing homes, and they're like, "Oh, they all got Moderna, but the boosters are Pfizer. You can mix and match. That's totally okay." And so those of you who heard me talk about this on Steve's show, Steve talked about it in his overtime segment as well. Sweden came out with a massive study observing 1.6 million people over nine months. And what they basically found is this. After seven months, the efficacy of the shots start to go negative, as we well know, in terms of preventing transmission. In terms of serious illness, they say after about seven months or six months, it has 42% efficacy, which is worthless because you don't know if you're from the 42 or the 58. And then that seven months, where we are nine to 12 months, which is where we're headed, is going to go down to zero and then negative. But more than that, they say very clearly that it's not holding up for men immunocompromised, frail, and elderly. Well, that's the whole enchilada. And by the way, the men was a separate clause. It's not men with comorbidities. Men was a separate thing. So to the extent the serious illness works, the prevention from serious illness, it's for a period of time for young, healthy females. Oh, okay. Well, the whole reason we needed this was for people that were vulnerable to this virus. And for those people, it doesn't work. All the studies show that from Puerto Rico, there was a recent study, by the way, that they were like, oh, it works against critical illness. And then in fine print, you see there, except for people with comorbidities. Oh, so we don't have an answer 19 months later to people like that. You can't live a life of isolation indefinitely. You can't keep getting clot shots. Look, I'm all for getting a shot every six months. Heck, getting a shot every month if it had no risk and had some benefit. That's why we're all for prophylaxis, taking these supplements that are very safe. These medications are very safe. But these things cause blood clotting in the people that can't tolerate it less less than anyone else. What are we doing? No one can answer this question. Could you imagine if we simply had active form D that we gave to these people? 14-fold greater risk of, a, of vitamin D-deficient people dying from the virus as opposed to people who aren't deficient. And in the Israeli study that did that, they defined deficient as 20. So I'm sure even the few that died in the, the, the ones that weren't deficient, they still had what's called insufficient. They're not deficient, but insufficient. They're you know below 40, 50. They had 19 months to do this. No, no effort. What's more draconian, locking people down for the remainder of their lives and guaranteeing that they live a terrible life in atrophy and exacerbate their dementia and get a bunch of clot shots that don't work by their own admission, which is why they have to lock them down, or take ivermectin every three days and get their D levels up and have doctors on staff to treat them at the first sign of trouble. How do we not do this? Because again, the seniors, you know, when you talk about people in a nursing home, they're going to dehydrate, and then that's just going to precipitate 
a bunch of people dying that don't need to die. I mean, no one needs to die, but you know what I mean? Like someone who gets a bad side of storm, yeah, you know, there's no way to prevent that. Um, but but you have a lot of people that I mean, there is a way to prevent that, but you have a lot of people that they'll wind up dying of just the kind of the flu-like th- issues. Um, I can't tell you the doctors that treat COVID how many times they'll have someone coming in, they'll put them on an IV, put them on a little oxygen, put them on some vitamin C infusions, get them back, nurse them back to health, so that they're then while they're doing that, they they could tolerate swallowing, you know, some of these medications that will kick in and turn off the cytokine storm or prevent it and 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 make them better. You know, everyone's talking about today fluvoxamine. It's a little bit weird. This is the first thing that they jumped on that is actually getting positive press. I'm a little suspicious. Maybe it's because the mental health profession has a lot of clout. But basically, as you well know, you've heard it from Ryan Cole and others. They've been using this on and off for over a year. There's nothing new. Um, fluvoxamine is, um, you know, if, if you think about there's antihistamines, antiparasitic, antivirals, anti-this, anti-that, antidepressants. And all these things kind of block certain mechanisms from coming into your cells. And some of them have mechanisms that seem to work for COVID. And one of them is fluvoxamine. It's, it's you know, the originally it was discovered last year when they would find in these uh, mental health institutions, the workers were getting sick, but the the patients weren't. So it was interesting, and that's how they discovered it. So a new study came out. They're all into it that patients that were able to tolerate it, because it's not so well tolerated, it had something like a 91% decrease in death and like a 66% decrease in hospitalizations, just fluvoxamine alone. So there's a lot of doctors have been using a, a kind of a dual therapy of ivermectin fluvoxamine to, with much success. Now, I haven't, I've moved away from it just in promoting it. I mean, I'm not a doctor, not like I could prescribe anyway, but just because it's one of the few that's not well tolerated, just kind of makes people feel bad. It's not, I don't think it's unsafe, but it is a mental, you know, health medication. It is a psych medication, plus it, it has side effects. So we have so many things that don't cause side effects. So I'm not so into it. It's funny that like, Ivermectin, which is the most well-tolerated thing, the best medication in the history of 50 years, they trash it. But somehow this, which actually does have annoying side effects, they're all into promoting. But I'm all I'm all for that. But open your eyes. We've known this. We've known this about 30 other therapeutics for months. Why hasn't the government dived headfirst into this? Well, again, we know why. But I'm talking about people who, who still think that there's altruistic intentions in what they're doing. That's the point. There's so many ways of, of treating this. I mean, again, Dr. Thomas Barodi from Australia. This guy is likely the greatest gastroenterologist of the generation. And we're going to talk about him a little bit tomorrow. We're going to have a special guest, Dr. Sabine Hazen from California. She is a GI doctor and a uh, scientist who's doing ivermectin clinical trials. And she her whole thing is gut health in your gut. You know, that's her specialty. She believes it holds the keys to COVID um, treatment. And so that's why GI doctors, if they're smart, they actually have the keys to this. Dr. Thomas Brody, I mean, he did a study where they used 24 milligrams of ivermectin a day, doxycycline 100 milligrams, and 50 milligrams of zinc, just that. And it reduced in their sample deaths by 100% and um, hospitalizations by 92%. 
And that's going to be published soon, but those are the preliminary findings. What are we doing? This is insane. Nobody has an answer to this. All these things that work. So much good data recently came out on curcumin, artemisinin, the, the, the betadine stuff. It, it's unbelievable. The nasal and, 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 and mouthwash. You do that every, you do that once a day preemptively when you're around people. And you do that certainly if you feel the onset of symptoms. It will, it will diminish your viral load to a point that you can't get, you know, dangerously ill from this. That alone. Aspirin. Famotidine. Famotidine is so important. Um, there's a couple that was treated by Dr. Henson to great success, but she was pregnant. So unfortunately, you know, there's, there's limited options and, uh, was getting day six, day six, seven, very sick. And, uh, it's very scary when you're pregnant. And she remembered that I mentioned famotidine, you know, two extra strength pepsids, which is, um, it's 20 milligrams a piece for the extra strength. So about two of those a day. And she felt better better right away. It's, it's anti-inflammatory. A lot of people don't realize that. It's over the counter. It's safe for everyone. It's one of the safest things around. Very well tolerated. In fact, all the kind of like GI issues or nausea that you typically get from other medications, this actually works against that. Terrific, terrific drug. Um... And uh, I'm kind of flattered. She said she named her baby Daniel. Uh, I was saying she should name name the baby Eric because uh, I'm just the middleman. Dr. Henson's the one who treated them. But but this is the thing. It's, it's No one has to die from this. Nobody, including people with comorbidities. So anyway, before we have our guest on and talk about the second half of this discussion, what we shouldn't be doing, the garbage they are pushing on us, I just want to mention again just the discussion we've been having this week about seven cells. We had the pharmacist who runs the operation on this Florida compound pharmacy. Again, it's S-E-V-E-N-C-E-L-L-S dot com. Cells as in white blood cells. And promo code Daniel for 20% off. Um, You know, a lot of people are getting great feedback that, you know, they get back to you right away. They've gotten their meds within often two days. Um, but, you know, some people are a little bit like, oh, I got turned down, I got denied. You do have to understand, they have to run an airtight operation. As it is, they're going to be scrutinized. So they have to play it by the book. So if you're, you know, you, you fill out a five-minute survey, if you're pregnant, if you, if you say you're pregnant, yeah, they're not going to give it to you. If you put down certain conditions that you have, they're, they're just going to deny it. Um now, a lot of you are like, well, there's no due process. Well, that's the point. If, if the doctors would sit and debate you for half an hour and call you up, okay, what's your story? How bad is it? They couldn't get to everyone. This is how they get it to as many people as quickly as possible. Well, what about those people that fall through the cracks? Look, I can't give you medical advice, but if you, despite those conditions or despite being pregnant, you want it anyway, look, nobody is telling you what to put down. I mean, they'll go off of what you disclose and and that is your choice. Also, you know, if you have a spouse, if you have a child, if you have a relative, a friend, a neighbor that you're in touch with, they could order it for themselves and you could order up to 60 pills. And these are not three milligrams. These are pegged to your weight. So it's plenty of product. 
you could reimburse them and they could get it shipped to them. And, you know, this happens all the time. If you want it, I'm not, again, I'm not recommending it. Um, you know, if you want to know my personal opinion, I, I personally think it's okay for nursing. Uh, pregnancy, all things equal, I'd stay away from it unless you really find yourself in a pickle. Um, not that it's bad, it's just that it's not studied enough. And unlike the clot shot people, we actually follow the precedent of not giving things to pregnant women that are not carefully studied. Um, and again, you know, obviously, Seven Cells is going to have a very conservative definition of conditions that they want to stay away from, even if they're not really founded to be a problem and they're not contraindicated. But I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Imagine being a doctor writing thousands of prescriptions into the abyss of people that you never met, just filled out a quick form, and it's for a drug that is being treated like the devil by the medical establishment. So th that's that's what they're going to do. I'm just warning you. So, you know, you're, you're going to be asked if you drink a lot of, you know, what level of alcohol you drink, a lot, some, never, whatever, something like that. If you're pregnant or nursing, what medications you're on, what conditions you have. Use your own common sense. If you feel that you want it and you want to take it, do what you feel is right. But just know if you answer in a certain way, the, you, you'll get a denial. Now, they'll, they'll, they'll refund your money, obviously, but they got to do this right. Um, the other thing is I get things from people, oh, I could get it much cheaper from India. So get it from India. That's fine. I'm not against that. It's just, again, it, it often, for some people, they do get it in like two weeks. Other people, it's four or five weeks. You don't know if it's a scam. It depends which one. Um, some people it works for, some people not. Some people got denied by customs. There also are questions about the purity. So like one of the things I would advise that if you're the type that wants to prophylax on this, you know, so take it regularly, what I would say is this. I would say get the seven cell stuff because you're going to get that immediately and you're going to get it perfect purity. That's going to be your, your lifeline. So you have it. Then order from India, find a place. I can't recommend one over the other, you know, at India Mart, which vendor. Um, ask around. People have sent different things. And if that comes in the mail, then start then using that for prophylaxis so you'll have enough product. And then I would, I would say to have the um, seven cells version, that's the guaranteed quality control um, purity. Have that on hand in case you or your loved one actually gets it. And that's going to be your your A team. Um that that's what I'm I'm doing now. Um I have 12 milligrams that came foreign, but you know, I trust the source that gave it to me. It was one of the doctors that I didn't even ask it. He sent it as a gift to me in the mail. Um otherwise I didn't have enough. And then I'm using the seven cells to have for if any of us, my wife or I get it. You know, whatever. Um, the other thing just to know is they don't, you know, the they don't do it for kids. But again, I mean, you could put in an order, your husband could put in an order, vice versa. Between the two of you, you can order a heck of a lot of pills pegged to your weight, and you know, you get a kid sick. They're not going to re recommend it, but I personally have no problem giving it to a kid, you know, twelve or older. Um, you know, younger than that, you really don't need it anyway. Um, give them the vitamins, um, things like that, and fluids and rest, and you know it should be fine. 
Um, for teens, I have no problem giving ivermectin, uh, but they won't prescribe under 18. Again, do the math. It's there. Use your brain. And again, just remember that the consultation fee for the prescription itself is just 25 bucks. So elsewhere, you'll have to spend 100 150 sometimes $200 to get the prescription. Then you have to run around to find a pharmacy. So it's very unlikely you're going to get a cheaper price. But if you're a guy that has a doctor that can write it for you for free, and then you know a pharmacy down the road that will get you a price cheaper than seven cells pegged to your weight, go go with it. I don't want to stop anyone, and I'm going to, um, you know, tomorrow or Monday, I'm going to have another doctor on that has his own telehealth. I'll promote his website as well. Multiple options. But, you know, I tell you, especially if you're heavier, I'll, I'll eat my hat if you could find a cheaper cost than that. Um because the heavier you get, the more cost-effective seven cells is because it's the same price, up to 28 milligrams. So again, and, and, and also just one other thing I'll tell you, and I know I'm going long here before our guest, if, um, you know, they'll only give you 0.2, right? So let's say you're, I don't know, um, off the top of my head, 150 pounds. That's about 14 milligrams at, at the 0.2, and you want to, you know, do the FLCC protocol, which is more the point four. Well, the good thing is you can order. So, you know, the base treatment is five days, so it'd be five pills of of fourteen milligrams. The extended one is ten days. You could order up to sixty pills from them, so you double it. You know, nothing's stopping you from doing that. That's the flexibility you kind of have. You, your husband, your between the two of you, you could get it done. Okay. You might be pregnant, but your husband's not, okay? You might have a condition, but you know someone you, you know might not. Use your judgment. Just understand, you know, they got to do what they have to do. So I, this is the best, most legal, airtight operation that is the most synergistic, guaranteed prescription for those that qualify and filling of it for the price that they're giving, for the weight, so you don't get those itsy bitsy three milligram ones that you have to take a bunch of them and um, at the quickest ability to get it into your home. Um, so I still stand by I've, best guaranteed purity you could ever get. Um, Tim, who we had on yesterday, he's a patriot. He's trying everything he can. The nitazoxanide is going to be ready soon. You could sign up. You could go to the website, sevencells.com. You could sign up uh, to be on the waiting list. Next week, they should have the pills are there already. They just need the medical form to fill out. Um, it will be another $25 consultation fee and shipping for that as well. But the 20% off with promo code Daniel will also apply to that. It is expensive. There's no way around it. Um, again, you can get cheaper nitazoxanide in Mexico or India. Um, but for those that are going through the FDA and the the, the precursors here, it just it, wholesale it costs them a ton of money, right? Any any other place in America, they won't write you a prescription, nor can you get it. And if you can, it's a thousand bucks. So here you can get the ten pills for, you know, the five day course, two day two pills a day for a hundred sixty with my promo code. So again, it is what it is. These are the cash prices. Um, but if I find better, I'm going to push that as well. Um, so that is where we are. But let's get to our guest. 
Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now, we've been talking about what we should be doing, what we should have been doing for 19 months. But what about the other half of the equation, what we shouldn't be doing, what we mustn't be doing, and what is being shoved upon us against our will? So we had the lockdowns, we had the masks, we had the shots, and all different rounds, they're up to pushing round four. But then there's news just out today Merck's CEO said that they're almost ready, pending approval by the FDA, emergency use authorization, they're going to have the first authorized outpatient drug, Molnipiravir. Molnipiravir is going to be out, and they're all excited, and it's going to be great, and we're going to save humanity. Now, you guys should be asking yourselves, all right, aside from the monoclonals, What has been produced by Big Pharma that didn't actually kill us, whether it's the problem with the the shots, the remdesivir, um, and really, you know, anything they're doing in the hospital is just unbelievable. Illumiant, we talked about that, courtesy of our next guest. And I am all for spending a trillion dollars because we're bankrupt anyway and jerking off on Big Pharma and giving them their money. If it actually, if it just works, just, just, Save us from this bioweapon they created and be done with it. But what if it not only has questionable efficacy, but it's remdesivir 2.0, but maybe in a different way? Well, that's a problem. You need to be forewarned. Um, you need to be forewarned. Remember, the media itself is admitting fluvoxamine. You know, there's a survey out today, study out. reduction in hospitalization, 91% mortality, at least in the sample size there. Um, Those numbers on the surface are better than than Molnipiravir. Heck, uh, the betadine nasal irrigation is much better. Um, And that's really cheap and doesn't make you feel garbagey, kind of like fluvoxamine does. So if we have all these solutions, should we even be looking at this? Now, with us to guide us together really is the best guest for this, Dr. Lynn Finn. Um, we had her on back by popular demand at Finderella One on Twitter. That's F Y N N D E R E L L A One on Twitter. Must read account. I learned so much from her. She is associate medical director of America's Frontline Doctors. She's also very heavily involved in the last number of years in drug development, bringing drugs to market and also was a uh, an infectious disease doctor, so really checks all the boxes here. Uh, Dr. Finn, thanks so much for coming back once again to Blaze Media. Thanks, Daniel, for having me. All right, so, you know, we're going to have to keep this under a half an hour. We have so much to get to. Molnipiravir, um, wh- what are some of the red flags, you know, with your experience with drug development looking at the history and process. And can you just give us some of the background of where this drug came from? It's not really new, like they would have you believe. It kind of is repurposed and its mechanism of action. Sure. Um, Well, 
what I know about the drug, uh, actually, its development goes back to about 2004. Um, Emory researchers studied a compound that's uh, called NHC, which is molnupiravir's uh, metabolite. Molnupiravir is actually a prodrug of NHC. So you take it orally, makes it more bioavailable. And what it breaks down to is NHC, which is really what the action is against the virus. Um, this drug was developed in 2004 originally to be an antiviral, kind of a genetic, generic antiviral. They didn't know what yet. Um, it ended up being a treatment potentially for influenza. NIH uh, pledged $16 million uh, to Emory, which is where it came from, to uh, contract it as an influenza drug. It's also shown some in vitro action against Ebola and something called V's, which is Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus, which is kind of ironic when um, a very competitor (laughs) is called horse horse dewormer. Here we have a, a horse antiviral, a, a bona fide horse antiviral um, as a main competitor now. So that said, in 2004, they studied NHC at, at uh, Emory, huge money behind it from taxpayers, not not only from the university, but from the NIH in the form of multiple grants. And a couple at a small company that develops drugs as well uh, ended up licensing it, recognizing it for its antiviral qualities, and partnered with Merck to take it to further development and market where it currently is in phase two slash three and potentially a compassionate use drug and EUA applicant. So here we are from 2004 to 2021, and all of a sudden it's a, a new drug. <laughs> so, so just before we get to the mechanism of action, you're saying the history here, they've been trashing repurposed drugs and say you have to have something specially concocted just for COVID-19. The irony is yeah. just like remdesivir, which was pulled out of the trash, repurposed from failing and killing people from Ebola, did the worst of the four in the New England Journal of Medicine you know, study uh, from December uh, 2019. And we're like, hey, it's a great idea. 53% died under its usage, the most of the four um, drugs that were used. So let's go use it. So this too, we pulled it out um, as a horse antiviral. And... Uh, Man, I guess that's what they say. You know, projection is always uh, common with people that uh, they, they think of this stuff because they're doing it. Okay, so let's go to the mechanism of action. Okay, so um, we're told that all this stuff we want to use, whether they're antiparasitics, whether they're antidepressants, whether they're, you know, H1, H2 blockers, antihistamines. Well, I don't like that, Daniel. That, that, that's, that's not an antiviral. We want an antiviral. <laughs> Could you explain to our audience what monopiravir likely does and why that's not a good thing as compared to, let's say, something like ivermectin or nitazoxanide? 
Well, sure. Anytime you're talking about an antiviral, first of all, it's not without risk. Um, Antivirals generally cannot distinguish between viral RNA and DNA, depending upon the virus, and human RNA and DNA. So because it cannot distinguish between the two, the method of action to halt or block or or kill in whatever way um, can be just as detrimental to the host as it is to the, the pathogen. And so the hope is that the drug you're taking will kill the pathogen before it harms or kills the host. And, you know, the difference between this and other repurposed meds, first of all, besides the decades of safety data that's under, under your belt with the repurposed meds, um, the, the general mechanism of action of other meds is to uh, maybe interrupt or halt binding to the host cells, block certain mechanisms of action, which allows it to take over the machinery of your cells and those sort of things. Completely different than what we're talking about with antivirals. Um, You have different classes of antivirals. You have protease inhibitors. You have nucleoside chain terminators. You have, like in this case, a nucleoside um, agonist or antagonist, which blocks uh, viral polymerases. And what that means is this, this this antiviral kind of interrupts the how it's transcribed. So it'll replace certain nucleosides in the genome to confuse it and halt it, basically. It'll kill it because it's not a viable mm. uh, pathogen when it's, when it's transcribing incorrectly. And that's the whole point, is to make it incorrectly. So that sounds very uh, heroic. That sounds like a great press release. Man, this thing, we found a way to screw up, you know, SARS-CoV-2. We're, you know, introduce garbage errors into it. Take that. And, like, we got the technology. And I could picture, you know, average person reading that, that sounds amazing. That sounds like a great breakthrough. We've never heard of something like that before. But could you tell us, in fact, that that technology is not new? We've known about it. We've used it before. What are the problems with it? Oh, there are loads of problems. I mean, when you're replacing, like in this case, you're replacing guanine or adenine in the the sequence. So what that does is when it goes to replicate, it's not a viable thing anymore. And what that also does is replace those same nucleotides, in, in this case, nucleosides, in a human. So your RNA is also going to be mutagenic or mutated. It encourages mutation beyond the norm. And that could later prove to be quite a problem in, in the host long after the pathogen is gone because you're having replication, incorrect replication, continue. And that can come up as, as a carcinogenic in forms of cancer. It can come up as a mutagenic in forms of birth defects um, in in male sperm or in female reproduction. And for that reason, it's a huge exclusion criteria in the studies to have women of childbearing years, unless they're on multiple um, 
and contraception, as well as men. I'll tell you, in, in the many years uh, I've developed therapeutics, there, there have been no drugs de- that I've developed that used male contraception so strongly uh, as an exclusion criteria. Um, most drugs don't really, aff- they don't worry so much about Wait male- a minute. Wait a minute. You're saying that's why in their press release, Merck's press release that came out a couple of Fridays ago, they said, bizarrely in there, the trial participants had to abstain from what they called heterosexual intercourse, <laughs> that's right? A, that's another thing I've I've not seen worded quite that <laughs> way before. I mean, normally when you're throwing in an exclusion criteria such as that in your protocol, what you're saying is you need a solid form of contraception with a backup um and you have to be completely informed in the consent to do so. But never have I heard, you know, heterosexual abstinence, so, which kind of green lights everything else. But Yeah, it green lights everything else. You. But what that tells me is that they're, they're not concerned about a partner-to-partner problem no. as much as they're concerned about childbearing. Well, absolutely. What could happen as a result? Um, wow. The mutagenesis can occur in sperm just as readily as it occurs in, in the virus. So that is a, a serious concern. Um, I don't know how else to put it, but it, they, they say, oh, well, it's just five days of treatment. And that's, that's factual. It's only five days of treatment, and you hope that the virus is you know, eliminated at that point, or at least that your immune system can take over the lowered load. But the truth of the matter is that it doesn't end there because it also causes mutagenesis in mammalian cells. That's been proven. So human cells are mammalian cells. It's going to continue to mutate and encourage mutation in that way. So how long are, are there long-term human trials? Absolutely not. Um, what is the result of that? What, what do you mean? What do you mean long-term mutations? Are you saying that? So there's two issues. Number one, the side effects, then things like uh, birth defects, possible cancer. But you're saying that kind of similar to our concern with the shots, that you you're shooting as I I like to say in in just pure layman's terms you're shooting at the king and missing you're you're going on an antiviral crusade and then you don't do it properly so the virus becomes more virulent you have viral immune escape around it that's our what we seem to be seeing everywhere in the world uh, we just talked about Ireland with the highest rate of um, vaccination in the EU and now they have one of the most problems the most uh, vaccinated county of Waterford there 99.7% of adults over 16 vaccinated they have the highest case rate um, are you well, saying that's because of that 0.3% unvaccinated <laughs> yeah, 0.3% right? no I, they actually said that in the Irish Times they quote someone like, all these unvaccinated people you can't make this stuff up um, or maybe they mean they don't have the th- third shot but but my point is, are you saying that the molnupiravir has the risk of doing a similar thing? It, the way I view it, am, am, am I off base, that it's kind of like the concern of chemotherapy, both both issues. Chemotherapy shoots the good with the bad, if you have the side right. effects. But also, the cancers tend to come back 
more virulently, kind of again, like we're seeing with the virus, is that a concern that if we 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 uh, expose the virus in addition to the shots to the molnupiravir and its mechanism of action, that it's going to make the virus more aggressive? You know, theoretically, just like with uh, bacteria and and it, you know any kind of antibacterial, you know, constant treatment or or exposure is going to teach the virus or bacteria to evade it. I mean that that's true with pretty much anything. I mean anything in life you you are exposed to it more and more, you learn how to deal with it. And that that'll always be a concern anytime you're dealing with a bactericidal or an antiviral, you'll always worry about, you know, the virus trying to figure out ways to get around it, all it wants to do is replicate. It's not looking to kill its host. It's not looking to do, you know, wreak havoc on the world. It's looking to make more virus. That's it. I say virus got a virus. So with that in mind, when you throw things at it, it goes, okay, well, how do I get over this? How do I get around this? And that's always a concern. I mean, it's happening right now with the vaccines the vaccines are not sterilizing, right? So since it's such a narrow group of epitopes that it's, that its mode of action is against, which is in the spike protein, that's the most mutative portion of this entire virus. So it figures out a way to change things up and get around it so it's unrecognizable. It's like putting on a Halloween mask. And then when your antibodies come after it, it doesn't recognize it it moves on Mm. and that's always going to be a concern with with any any kind of anti-viral or or antibiotic so that's one concern sure um the other concern of course is the fact that it incorporates into the genetic material of mammalian cells so it's ability to integrate into the human material, human cells, will cause mutations in those. As each cell replicates, it's going to cause mutations. And that's a concern. That's, that's what is happening in cancer, right? You have multiple cells proliferating quickly and making errors in each new cell. It's not a normal whole cell. And as it multiplies, multiplies at such a fast rate and incorrectly, you create these tumors, you create these neoplasms. And that's that's what the concern is with a mutative drug such as this one, as it incorporates in, in human cells, genetic material. So what I, what I gather from what you're saying, to give an analogy, it's kind of like what things like ivermectin and azoxanide, all these other things that we're looking at, you have a hostage situation, and these things are like a trap door that allows the 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 good guys to escape and you know evacuate from the situation. Whereas the antivirals, in the traditional sense, are when you start taking out, you kick in the door, you take out the guns, and you start shooting. And the risk there is a you're going to shoot the good uh, with yeah. it, and b you know they'll start shooting back at you too. And that's that's kind of what I what I get gather from where you're saying. So are you telling me that? Just historically, we don't really have good antivirals in the traditional sense as an offensive drug that tries to go after, directly go after the virus. 
Well, you know, you really think about it, you really can't because unlike bacteria, bacteria can multiply in its host. Unlike bacteria that can just multiply on its own, a virus requires your cells, requires your machinery to replicate. And because of that, when you're trying to halt that bacteria, you have to think that you're, I mean, not bacteria, excuse me, that virus, you have to think that you're going to also affect the human cell mm. that is required for its replication. And so, and that's also true with protease inhibitors because protease is an enzyme required for, for certain viruses. But you know what? We also need protease in, in the human body. So wow. you're always going to have a trade-off. The, the whole key in therapeutics is to limit the trade-off so it's yep. more detrimental to the pathogen or the invader than it is to, to the host. And, you know, it's really tough with, with antivirals because those are things that humans need too. So it's, it becomes a kind of a triage thing. So or you're a priority saying thing. we have no good success story. How would you rate something like Tamiflu? Tamiflu is very similar. Tamiflu was originally thought to be effective against Ebola. It's a pure accident that it's actually used for influenza. And, and I'll tell you, much like Tamiflu, th this drug is only supposedly proven effective within the first few days. Yes. And... Aside from that, it's not, and it can become even more detrimental, but it's only affected the first few days for mild cases. Well, let's be real. <laughs> Aspirin is also effective within the first few days for mild cases, as is high vitamin D, as is the povidone gargle, as is ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. We have so many in our arsenal for mild early cases why would you, you take such a risk? Absolutely. I mean, part of assessing what therapeutic you're going to choose is a benefit-risk ratio. You want to know what that benefit is versus the risk. And if you're looking at, they say, a 50% benefit in hospital, hospitalized, which, okay, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's their press release. India, that's not what India says. They they actually stopped their uh, two studies because that's not the case. They said it didn't but, work in moderate, moderate cases. So so if you're right. telling me, like, there's one thing if, wow, we found something that's really good in moderate. So then, like you're saying, you could kind of weigh the potential risk, but, you know, they might really crash and go over that cliff day seven, day eight very soon and get into severe case, and this prevents that, it might be worth it. But if you're telling me it doesn't work for that, and it's only the really early stage that it would even have a benefit, then, well, I'll go with the stuff that doesn't cause mutagenic issues and and uh, birth defects and whatever. Mean, again, it's risk-reward. So what is your risk? I don't know. There aren't any long-term human studies. Um, it's mutagenic. It incorporates in mammalian uh, genetic material. Hmm. What do you think? Um, it, 
once you have a high viral load, taking something that's going to inhibit proper replication at that point, what is it going to do? I mean, just if you just think of the mode of action, you can figure out when it's most beneficial. Prior to getting it is the most beneficial because you'll prevent that replication. But then think of the risk. (laughs) You're taking a mutagenic for something you don't really have yet. And if you do it just post-exposure, pre-symptomatic, again, you're taking something that's not only quite expensive, but mutagenic for the potential to, you know, keep that viral load down. Again, you have to take everything into consideration when you're considering uh, therapeutics for a patient, one of which is their risk factors, their comorbidities. You have to look at whether, you know, a real aggressive form of treatment is required early on or if, you know, something moderate, something very risk-free that, that you have decades of data on, safety data on, is, is more appropriate. And, you know, the same thing goes with, with this drug. Uh, it's named after Thor's hammer. <laughs> and, and that's, <laughs> that's where they got the name from. So, I mean, it not only hammers the virus, it's, it's hammering you, too, and it, and it will for, for as long as those cells replicate in your body. But I just want to be careful, like, politically here because I'm, I'm concerned about what they're trying to do, and, you know, they're going to use this to box out. Um, they're already declaring war against therapeutics, but they're going to almost ban them like Australia because they'll say, look, now we have something. Now we have an approved drug. So uh, now we're going to not allow anyone to even try to get or obtain fill or prescribe things like ivermectin. Um, oh, yeah, of course they will. I mean, this, first of all, it's not even approved. It, it's, it's given a green light for potential co- compassionate use. Which makes no what sense kind of because like you're telling me that. at the compassionate stage, like I'll, I'll, it was the funniest thing, Marty Macri, you know, he said some good stuff on yeah. natural immunity, but he wrote a whole thing in the Wall Street Journal. There's people on ventilators. We need this. I'm like, dude, you're a Hopkins uh, famous guy. Not, yeah, it's not anti-inflammatory. Not There's no way it can that. work at that. It's like, what do you, like, I'm, I'm some like political guy who runs my mouth for a living. I don't have a medical background. How does a Hopkins <laughs> guy think in, in something like that could ever work past the viral replication stage? I mean, these people say the darndest things. Um, and by the way, on that note, could you just, and we got to pick up the pace here. I want to get to one other thing. Um, just to, to mm-hmm. close the loop on Molnupiravir. So could you just, contrast the difference between remdesivir and molnupiravir is it that remdesivir seems to do you in very quickly the kidney and liver damage happens it's it's short term are you saying with molnupiravir the main concern is that you might not see it in in the way we see with remdesivir will be like long term yeah um it's it's mode of action is a little different and because molnupiravir has the mutative properties um, it, it could remain in the host and, and continue, whereas remdesivir is gone when the half-life's gone and that's that and the damage is done. Um, it's not quite as effective um, according to studies, okay? And it's additionally not, not 
very effective in late stages. They're using it because it's it's hitting them when they're most vulnerable. But but the long term concerns are real with this drug, wow. and the long term concerns with progeny are real. But in, that in scares this drug. me. That I'm just it telling you, Doctor Finn, I'm, I'm very scared because everything they've done until now just didn't work, and so it's easier to make the case against. And my concern is that it will have a degree of efficacy very early, as it as it should. Um, as it should. But right. there's other stuff that also does and won't cause those problems, but those problems won't be evident. And this is really – this is why I really want to get the word out on this. I'm just very concerned about that, and they're going to get away with murder. I want to move right. on. I mean how yeah. do you make that connection further down the road? It, they're not even making connections. With remdesivir. With, with vaccine injury. Yeah. I mean after – a couple of months, it's long forgotten, and all of these maladies arise, and they're not making that connection with the, with the vaccine. You think they're going to make that connection when you have children or when you have a, a cancer diagnosis five years down the road? No, they will not. It's a five-day treatment. Why would they even think that? This is the perfect stealth stink bomb, and that's what I, that, that's why you know I'm really focusing on it. I'm very concerned that this is – this is kind of the perfect attack that they could uh, uh, push on oh, us. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Uh, because, it, because it, look, nothing uh-huh. has worked. Nothing they pushed really has worked. This is going to be the first outpatient thing. And, and, and they're indulging our way of thinking. And a lot of people are, wow, we have an outpatient thing. It seems to be getting rid of it. Make sure you take it early. Great. And uh, Look what AZT did. I mean, that was the thought process behind AZT. And, and it made sure everybody... <laughs> didn't live past two years. I mean, it, it's the most toxic drug in history to be put in a human. And it Jeez. was also pulled off a shelf that was sitting there since the 60s. And and our, our dear Dr. Fauci, you know, thought it was a great idea to use it in this case, just like he thought that Molpirnavir was a great idea to use an influ- influenza. And, Unbelievable. This is, this is where we are. This is where we are. This is where we are. We're coming up on about an hour here. Um, I just want to end off with one one of the many things we're leaving on the table today because uh, there's just too much to talk about. Um, you were very into this last week, uh, going back to the vaccine stuff. Um, last time I had you on, you were really the first person to get me into this concern that the vaccine is shedding, self-spreading, which is something that Hopkins wrote about in 2018, a self-spreading vaccine. And you you focused on this paper that just came out in the Journal of Immunology by researchers from St. Joseph's Hospital in Phoenix and Yale Department of Pathology. They showed that the Pfizer shot is what they study. It causes circulating exosomes with SARS-CoV-2 spike protein to travel throughout the body. Could you talk about what you believe are the consequences of that? Well, I mean, the fact that they that they showed that occurs tells me simply that if it is if the spike is allowed to attach to exosomes and circulate again further shows that number one, it is not staying at the injection site as they thought. Number two, the the spike as it moves and, and is carried by lipid nanoparticles, whether it's past the blood brain barrier and the ovaries or anywhere else that accumulates a spleen, it's not net the spike is not 
being produced and necessarily staying within the cell or on the cell. It can attach to exosomes and it can be sent anywhere in the body. So that can infiltrate anywhere. It can go through, and, and Sabine uh, Hazam will be on with you tomorrow, and you can discuss with her the sim- a similar thing, and that it can go through the GI tract, end up in stool. It can go through urinary tract, end up in urine. It can go through your pores, your skin. It can be transferred in the same way that sweat appears to, to transfer from one person to another and, and anything else. It can't mm. stay in your body when you're making trillions and trillions and trillions of them. It has to go somewhere. And, and that's one of the properties. The fact that it's not staying in the deltoid and it's anywhere in your body just proves, it's almost like a smoking gun. It proves that it can be transmitted through your, your breath, through your saliva, through your skin, through your urine, feces, shared bathrooms, close domicile. There is no reason to believe now that they've proven that it's carried attached to exosomes. It's proven that there's no reason to believe that it can't be transmitted from one person to the next. Now, understand, it's not the virus. It's the pathogenic portion of the virus. So who needs to produce it and mass the virus when you have a bolus of the pathogen, the pathogenic portion in one, one hit. So that's the concern. That's why some people are reporting feeling uh, symptoms after being in close domicile with someone that just got vaccinated. They say, Jeez. you know, it's really weird. I, I broke, out, broke out on this rash. Where did this come from? Or I started bleeding. I haven't had a period for 10 years, and I've been bleeding for three weeks. These sorts of things needed an explanation, and this is is a a very reasonable explanation. It's in your blood. It's everywhere. And and what's scary is they brag about and they think it's a good thing. I mean, they brag about it, that it's circulating in the exosomes for four up to four months. Um, you know why they brag about it is because it's also a, a mechanism to look at for another type of vaccine. <laughs> oh, no. So they're not looking at the big picture in that respect. And that, that happens a lot. I'm sure the people who did the massive studies on molnupiravir said, this is fantastic. This is a breakthrough. And they're right. It is in, in vitro, in cell lines. But. You've got to take that scientist and go, okay, now in the human host, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on. It's not a cell line. It's not just one endpoint. So you have to look at big picture. And that's true with the vaccine. It's true with treatment. And and that's why I'm a stickler for something that has decades of safety data. Yes, I mean. It has to be safe first. It has to. You can't have your cure be more detrimental than the disease you're treating. Well, that has been the whole principle that has been violated from day one. And, and what you're telling me is quite eerie as we look at places like Ireland when the number one most vaccinated county has the number one case count per capita. The number two most vaccinated place has the yeah. second. It's and, like, and gee. It's not, you- it's not, uh, it's not you know, unique. It's happening worldwide. 
It doesn't so make sense. It, you yeah. have to look at these patterns. You just have to. You can't. I mean, there's there's an elephant in the room. You you've got to look at it and you've got to an- analyze it for what it is, and, and make some changes. Yeah, this is this is nuts. There's so much more we'll get to next time. Future Look, vaccines. The bottom line, and, and what I'm going to end with here is the three most important things to me mm-hmm. is number one, early treatment. It has to be able to become more accessible. Pat, off patent medications that are safe, what does it hurt? Early treatment has to be accessible accessible and you have to allow physicians to be physicians and treat their patients as they see fit. You know, secondly, you know, we have to understand that children and this vaccine is is a no starter for me. I'm sorry. It's it, until you can prove benefit, it, it's not even a a, a starter. Uh, I'm really disappointed uh, about the the recommendation from from the advisory board. But that said, children, no vaccines, no for this particular uh, malady. These things have to be repeated time and time again because it's really important to get the get these ideas across. Early treatment works, and not necessarily this one. <laughs> that is that is for sure. And we'll we'll talk about uh, again. Uh, other endeavors within the vaccine world. Next time there's other vaccines cooking, um, reactivating latent viruses with leaky vaccines. There's so much we want to get to next time. We're out of time, um, but I'm glad that we spent it with you rather than me just droning on. So folks, we're going to have to push it off till tomorrow. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Finn, for enlightening us as well. You could always see her on at Finderella1 on Twitter. Um, Great source material you'll find from her. I've learned so much, and I hope you have as well. Uh, Gotta run till tomorrow. God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.